Welcome to the Saluki Gamecast for July 7th, 2022. I am already laughing because Ryan Frills has been going off on quite a rant here already <laughs> about his gritty Sonic reboot. Um, I don't know if we want him to go into details on that or not. Uh, but my name is Justin Young, and as noted, Ryan Frills is joining me. Also here is OJ Duncan. Alicia is away on whatever journey she is on, like reading all the Sonic comics over again, because I'm pretty sure she's read them all previously, because she did not seem at all surprised by that Sonic panel I sent you all, where it's a unicorn trying to convince uh, Tails to assassinate Dr. Robotnik. (laughs) And she seemed like, oh yeah, this is perfectly normal, (laughs) Sonic lore. Um, So uh, how have you two been? Have a good 4th of July. <laughs> That's good. I uh, started my summer teaching, so I'm working with a really great uh, group of students. So that's been really fun for me. What class are you teaching? I'm teaching uh, Communication Studies 101, for, and it's an in-person session for the uh, Future Scholars Program. So that's a program that we have on campus, and it takes students who are not quite at college level, so maybe their scores were a little low or their grades were a little low, um, and it's giving them a chance over the summer um, it's all paid for for them for the, the SIU Foundation, um, and they take English 101, Comp Studies 101, and University 101, and they have a very structured summer to like introduce them to these classes that give them the skills that they need to succeed in school. And also, I would imagine kind of introducing them to the life of a college student, mm-hmm. like the different style of schedule you have over a high school schedule. Let's oh, yeah. Say. Yeah, definitely. Um, and most of them are 17 or 18. I had one student who just turned 18 yesterday. And uh, they're really, really motivated because they know they're like, I'm being given a really awesome chance. Um, and a lot of them are first generation students. So we focus a lot on like hidden curriculum stuff to make sure that they can succeed. And we want to make sure that they graduate. So uh, it's really I really enjoy it as a first generation student myself and as a student who kind of needed help to get into to uh like college life myself, I really think it's an amazing program, and I'm really honored to be able to to work with these students. Oh, that sounds great, OJ. Uh, Ryan, how about you? Um, doing good. Uh, you can tell how eventful my Sonic, my, not Sonic. <laughs> my <laughs> we can July, see what's been on your mind. <laughs> my July 4th has been because I, I don't even remember what I did on July 4th. Like, it, and I don't mean like it was wild. I mean, like, I don't know, I was... I had to play video games that day. That might have been what I was doing, which I'll talk about that more later. But also I've been telling you all about what my theoretical Sonic movie would be. I, I call it Sonic the Hedgehog, Tales of Betrayal. <laughs> and, and it stars Brian Cranston? Yes, as the villain, the main villain. As Dr. Robotnik or just a villain? No, Um. so you're talking about that comic panel that you sent, like, with the unicorn telling... Tails to shoot Dr. Robotnik. So the unicorn guy, I, I don't care about what his name. He's just Brian Cranston early. Um, it's just Brian Cranston with a unicorn <laughs> mask. And Tails is growing tired of the cyclical nature of their battles with Dr. Robotnik, not really doing anything. It's just battle after battle. And Robotnik is just still growing as like a technocrat capitalist powerhouse. And um, Brian Cranston's unicorn mask villain enlists Tails and like tempts him into assassinating Dr. Robotnik, and it works. Tails does it, and uh, Sonic and Knuckles try to stop him, but they're not in time. Dr. Robotnik is down, 
And But then Tails starts to become disillusioned again because he realizes that Brian Cranston just wanted to start his own uh, capitalist, like, technocrat power structure thing and whatever. Um, he's like, you saw Jeff Bezos was bad. You saw Elon Musk was bad. You have not seen Brian Cranston in this movie. And then, like, it ends with Brian Cranston, like, just just tearing apart Sonic and Knuckles um, and, like, beating them down. Like, at one point, Knuckles swings at Brian Cranston and he catches his fist and says, I'm the one who knocks and punches Knuckles down in the ground. And, like, at one point, he, like, holds up Sonic and says, I sent Malcolm to the middle and I'll send you to hell <laughs> and throws him across the room. And right as he's about to just totally annihilate them, uh, it's then that Tails remembers all the good times he had with Sonic and he uses an emerald power laser to shoot... Uh, Brian Cranston, like, in the back, and stab him in the back with it, I guess, and and then defeats him, and then they all become friends again, and Sonic, Knuckles, and Tails go out for Chili Dogs, the end. So, Alicia, this is what happens when you leave and we have this big <laughs> Sonic hole that we need to fill. Uh, this, is, this is what happens. I would also note that Ryan told us he thought of all of this in five minutes, but this sounds like months of, <laughs> <laughs> of planning and thinking through this very intricately plotted storyline. Ten minutes. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I was just looking at the comic panels like, how could I make this in a movie? <laughs> um, all right, before we get to games, I'm just going to give my TV recommendation, which is Miss Marvel, uh, the new um, Marvel Disney Plus streaming series. If you haven't watched it, it's fantastic. And what the early word has been that ratings have been kind of lower on it than the other Marvel series, maybe because it's a new character, maybe because it's about a teenage girl, maybe for other more negative reasons. Um but it's a really fantastic show. It is maybe the best uh, Marvel series so far. It's just been really fantastic. You should watch it. Um, I keep wanting to call it the Marvelous Miss Marvel because that makes me <laughs> laugh. But um, that's my recommendation. It's also just objectively a good title. Yeah, I will second that, too. We I finally got my guys, and we're almost caught up. Uh, we watched the first episode of Ms. Marvel last night. Uh, it was amazing. It's fantastic. Um, and I really, I'm looking forward to seeing the rest of it. And I, I'm going to see uh, Thor Love and Thunder with them on Friday, too. So I'll, I'll be 100% caught up finally on the MCU. Fantastic. I still need to watch Miss Marvel. Okay, I'm, it's, 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 I'm excited about it, though, so I'll, get a chance, I'll do it when I get a chance. But first, I'm going to watch Owl House because some new episodes of that popped up on Disney+. Plus. So Great. Well, let's jump into news, and we have some fantastic news to start off with. E3 is back, baby. <laughs> Starting uh, next summer, uh, E3 is coming back in 2023. Um, it is now going to be managed by the same company that manages PAX and Star Wars Celebration and New York Comic Con. That is the company Read Pop. Um, so... It's not entirely clear what format the show is going to take. And given Reed Pop's involvement, it sounds like it's going to be a very consumer-facing event, right? Mm -hmm. All those events that I just rattled off are very consumer-facing, whereas traditionally E3 was very industry-facing. Um, you know, Only in the last few years has it started allowing in the general population. This sounds like it's going to be sort of another PAX. Um, and, of course, Summer Games Fest is also saying they're going to be back next summer. Mm -hmm. 
They also plan to have an in-person component to that event. So it, it's not clear what next summer is <laughs> going to yeah. look like. Mm-hmm. But there is going to be an E3, apparently. There is going to be a Summer Games Fest. Are you excited? I'm excited. And E3 is going to have to compete with Summer Game Fest. So that might they might need to turn a little more um, consumer-facing uh, just to compete. Because Summer Game Fest has picked up so much that I, like, I'm looking forward to it more than E3, if we're being honest. So they're really going to have some competition now. Yeah, I think Summer Games Fest has just continued each year to better its image and everything. And so I think a lot of people are excited for it next year. And I think you're right. E3 very much has to overcome that excitement. Um, So I'm interested to see what will happen with it. Uh, It sounds like it's going to be a totally new E3. So there is some excitement to that. And, you know, certainly Read Pop does good with those events, Um, you know, I don't hear a lot of complaining about the PAX events or Star Wars Celebration. People seem to be pretty pleased with how those are run. Um, We talked about Diablo Immortal. There's some more information out of it. So I believe originally when we talked about it that, OJ, you quoted the figure that it cost something like over $150,000 to Mm -hmm. max out a character. New figures have come out that state that's actually $500,000 in order to max out a character. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is a revision. Somebody's gone in and redone the math and everything, and maybe maybe there's been some changes in the probability of getting certain items. Uh, because mm-hmm. I know when you we were talking about that last time, one of the things that people were talking about, they had spent like $50,000 and mm-hmm. only gotten one of the – yeah, uh, the special gems that they mm-hmm. need it. So uh, apparently it's a lot more expensive to max yourself out mm-hmm. in Diablo Immortal. However, they are generating over a million dollars per day since release. So somebody or two people per day are maxing out <laughs> characters. People are spending money on this game. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I think a lot of people have been turned off by it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some, somebody's throwing money at it, I guess. I look forward to the sequel, the inevitable sequel, Diablo Bourgeoisie. (laughs) Yeah, it's not a good enough game to not be able to max out unless you pay $500,000. Like, I I really, really like to min-max in games. Um, And so it really, I'm not, like, I I started playing it a little bit and then I saw those numbers and I was like, "Eh, no, that's just, I'm not going to. I'm not going to invest time in this if I have to, you know, t- take out a loan to to progress in the game. Yeah, that doesn't sound worth it. Like yeah. it's for cheaper, you could play so many other games too. Yeah, and it's. I think. It, I mean, there are whales, obviously, and there's people spending small amounts, but there's also streamers who are playing that are like, I'm making a bunch of money, so I'll just you know dump a bunch of that money into this game because I'm going to be making more, um, and. Like, I wish they would just stop. Like, stop. It's like you're 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 um, rewarding uh, Blizzard for doing something this horrible. Yeah, but, you're, you're encouraging bad yeah, behavior. Yeah, right? it's like, oh, my dog bit me. Let me give him a few treats. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of people behaving badly, it's um, the Sonic developers. <laughs> That's the best segue ever. <laughs> Um, Sonic Origins, the co-developer 
uh, of that game uh, who worked on some of the individual um, ports of the original Sonic games as part of that is apparently very unhappy with the state of the game and has gone to the step of publicly coming out and saying, hey, look, we're really unhappy with what they did with our work, and we want to fix it, but they would not let us fix it before release. This is sort of unheard of. We're going to talk about another instance in just a few seconds uh, of something very similar to this happening. But, you know, the game industry is a fairly small industry in the big scheme of things, right? It's fairly tight-knit, and you don't want to come out and throw a major publisher like Sega under the bus Mm -hmm. because Sega's not going to want to work with you again. Mm -hmm. And you have to consider that other companies are watching this and saying, you know, your Electronic Arts and your Take-Twos and other companies are watching this and saying, hey, they're throwing the publisher under the bus. Do we want to work with them? Mm -hmm. Um and so, you know, obviously Sonic Origins has had some complaints since it came out, some issues with it and everything. But some. this is a pretty extreme measure for people, mm-hmm. the developers, to take. They just need to hire Ryan to do all of the script writing for the game. Yes. <laughs> so he can uh, do the new animated sequences mm-hmm. or live action sequences. Excuse yeah. me. That was their <laughs> that was their problem. They did yeah. animate it instead of doing live action with Brian Cranston. I, I don't see why we can't do both. I, I would like to do things as more of a, like a Who Framed Roger Rabbit direction. Oh, I thought here. you were going to say like a, a multiverse of Sonic Madness where it was going to be here's one version where Sonic's animated, here's the live action universe. <laughs> I mean, that can be the sequel. <laughs> Um, speaking of developers coming out and throwing people under the bus, uh, Yuji Naka, uh, one of the producers of the original Sonic games, um, going back to the original <laughs> Genesis games, um, has come out and publicly criticized his former Balan Wonderland colleagues. Um, going so far as in one social media post actually scribbling out the face of one of the developers... <laughs> in a photo, um, which is, you know, really petty. (laughs) I don't love it. And, you know, yeah, it's kind of funny uh, on the outside watching it as it happens, but, you know, it's a really kind of weird, petty thing. Um, You know, Yuji Naka may just be at this point looking at it as, hey, my career's over, I'm just retiring, like, what do I care? Let's burn it all down. (laughs) <laughs> and if you need it further evidence of that, Yuji Naka has come out and confirmed something that I feel like has been confirmed several times over, but never quite as directly as someone this involved with it. Uh, Yuji Naka has come out and said that he, um, that Michael Jackson did in fact work on the music for Sonic 3. Um, and that's been a long running rumor in the games industry there's been several times where it felt like it's been confirmed, mm-hmm. but this is the guy who was the producer of Sonic 3 coming out and saying, oh, yeah, Michael Jackson worked on this game. Um, one, of, uh, one of Michael Jackson's collaborators um, has come out and said, oh, yeah, he did work on this, um, but I actually did most of the work. Michael did, like, one day of work on this. Uh, <laughs> And, of course, Michael Jackson's name is not listed in the credits. And, in fact, 
that's not that weird because Michael Jackson very famously did uh, his voice for an episode of The Simpsons, and his name does not appear in the credits of that. Where it gets weird is Sonic 3, they've changed that music. So in the Sonic Origins package and in other re-releases, they've actually taken out the tracks that people believe Michael Jackson was responsible for. That's also interesting because that episode of The Simpsons that Michael Jackson does a voice for is the only episode of The Simpsons that you cannot watch on Disney+. Plus. Hmm. So I, I don't think this has anything to do with Michael Jackson's you know, um, personal and legal problems. This seems more to do with some sort of legal issue about who has the rights to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's really kind of a weird, interesting saga because you would have thought like if Michael Jackson did the music for Sonic three, they would have just owned that music going forward. But maybe that's not how the contracts were written at the time. Yeah, and, like, music is really weird with a lot of contracts from around that time, too, because if you're looking at, um, like, Beavis and Butthead, they finally just got all of the rights for streaming um, and re-releasing them with the original, like, videos that they did after, what, 30 years. Um, Daria still, they can't play all the original music because it was the contracts at that time weren't covering a lot of other stuff. So, like, maybe the ability to stream a game is they're saying, hey, you can't, you can't use it because you don't have streaming rights. Yeah, a lot of older television shows do have that issue. Mm-hmm. So going back, uh, it's one of the reasons you don't find shows like, say, Miami Vice mm-hmm. on streaming services today or WKRP in Cincinnati mm-hmm. uh, because they simply can't get the rights to all that music or it would be cost prohibitive to get the rights for a lot of the music that they use. Uh, MTV was certainly problematic with that mm-hmm. because – you know, they had the rights to use that music to play it on MTV. But mm-hmm. as soon as they take those shows like Beavis and Butthead and move them off of MTV, they lose all those mm-hmm. rights. And just like just for a couple more examples, like uh, one of the big things in this was the case with the Netflix release and now the new Blu-ray releases, Neon Genesis Evangelion. Um, that show always ended on within the ending credits, fly me ending credits, fly me to the moon, mm. um, which was a beautiful song for those episodes to end on that I thought thought were like really worked for that show, but because of copyright issues, they don't do that anymore. Like in the Netflix release, they just I think they added like one of the themes from one of the characters, uh, Ray, uh, as the ending theme to the song now, and I think they did the same thing for the Blu-ray release. Mm-hmm. So I guess they've, um, and even like, I even got like the Blu-rays where you can still hear the original like English voice cast because there's copyright issues in mm-hmm. that too because the company that originally put out the show died and the show was kind of in like copyright hell for a while right um, for English releases but you even though I got the could get the copy with the original voice actors I still couldn't get uh fly me to the moon as like the ending song in it um and what else oh and there's a show called mission hell and when I got the DVD to it it was also like you had had multiple like songs on it like really good songs but then DVD release they're like removed so yeah, and we've seen that in some video games. Um, you know, certainly when you go back to the Grand Theft Auto games because they have their radio stations and everything, they've actually had to go in and patch some of the music out because when they originally uh, made that game, they maybe signed a five-year licensing contract, and they're still selling that game five years later, and they can't renew those particular songs or something. Um, it, it's just, I think, a little weird for games of 
this era where it's not licensed music. You know, it's not something, this isn't thriller from Michael Jackson playing on the radio. This is some wholly new original song composed just for this game. Mm -hmm. And so I think that's what makes it really kind of weird and unique in the game industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Let's see the game 13. uh, That's X. uh, I, 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 uh, is the remake of it is getting a remake from a new developer. So if you're not familiar with the game 13, that was a PlayStation 2 Xbox era game. Uh, it's based on a comic book. It's uh, cell shaded. It had David Duchovny doing uh, the character, the main character's voice and everything. It was a pretty neat little first person shooter at, I, I remember at the time liking it, playing it. Um, and then a couple of years ago, they did a remake of this game, and the remake was just hated by fans. <laughs> and so now they've brought in a new developer who's going to do a new remake <laughs> of that remake. So, Oh, so, I was just waving away from a fly. Sorry. Oh, okay. <laughs> I thought you were trying to hand signal me about something. <laughs> Um, Disco Elysium has added dyslexia-friendly fonts. This is really interesting to me. Um, we've talked before on the show about accessibility and how game makers are doing a lot more for accessibility in games these days. Um, dyslexia-friendly fonts. I, I don't know a whole lot about dyslexia. I've heard this term before. Um, I don't know what makes a font more friendly to someone mm-hmm. with dyslexia. But so it's the the serifs on the letter, which is the little like flourishes and the ends. The feet on yeah. the bottoms of the letter. Yeah, like there's the feet on the bottom, and then like on the top of it, sometimes on an F instead of a straight line, you'll see a little like curl go down. Sure. Um, so serifs are the things that really trigger dyslexia in people. So you'll see a serif or a um, sans serif font, mm-hmm. um, and then like one of the biggest, the worst ones is Times New Roman because everybody uses it um, a lot yeah. and then people get it and it's really not dyslexic friendly. Um, but some, some friendly fonts for if you're making anything is Arial and Calibri are two, they're my favorite too, to use. And they're sans serif and they're very friendly. And Calibri is the default font in Microsoft Word now, yes. if you were wondering. Mm-hmm. It used to be Times New Roman and then they changed it to make it I accessible. I think we need to put away Times New Roman. Mm-hmm. I, I, you know what? Yeah, I'm, I'm here. I'm saying it. Hashtag cancel Times New Roman. Yeah. Same. I, I, I genuinely, I'm. Uh, if it's what not did as Times New Roman do this now, it, it wasn't accessible, and that's its fault. Yeah, but yeah, I'm, this is good. Um, I'm happy about this, and it, it's a game that concerns like mental health and like different like neurodivergence too. So I think that's a good move from them. One funny point is that uh, one of the best, if not the best, font for people's dyslexia is Comic, Comic Sans. Sans. Yeah. The sans means sans serif in Comic Sans. And uh, so people, it's one of the best, and uh, dyslexic people generally have the best with it. So if you see screenshots someone took on a phone and it's in uh, Comic Sans, just realize that that's for accessibility for them. Is it because the letters, like, are so ununiform yes. that it makes it easier for mm-hmm. them to, like, kind of track across a screen or a page? Yes. Yeah, they're they're all very distinct. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's interesting. Um, so yeah, I, I wasn't, I wasn't actually sure what dyslexia friendly font meant. Um, I know I've read that before and a couple of things, but 
that's uh, good information to know. And it's really cool of the developers to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think Ryan, like you said, because of the themes of the game, but also just, you know, all game makers should be trying right. to do better with this sort of thing. Um, this is, this is sad. Um, and this is kind of an ugly side of video game fandom. Um, people have forced Ron Gilbert uh, basically into silence on social media, Twitter specifically, about Return to Monkey Island. If you're unfamiliar, Ron Gilbert is an elder statesman of the game industry. Uh, this is a guy who worked on all those classic uh, Lucasfilm adventure games, so Maniac Mansion and the Monkey Island games and lots of others uh, during that era. And he's working on the new Return to Monkey Island game, which is supposed to come out later this fall. People are very upset about the the art style for that new game after the trailer debuted. And they took to social media, basically not just voicing displeasure, but like attacking him. Um, you know, and just basically harassing him. Um, Good Lord. And I, I think the intent, right? Like this sort of dates back to the Sonic the Hedgehog, the first film, right? Where people got upset about how Sonic looked in that first trailer and they went online and they threw a fit and they got the, who made that Paramount? Uh, They got Paramount to spend the money and delay the movie and change the visual effects in the movie and the design for Sonic. Or you could look at something like say, um, uh, Mass Effect, where people threw a fit after Mass Effect 3 came out and they got them to go back and change the ending. And But neither of those were as personally directed as this, I feel like. Maybe the Mass Effect, there was probably some of that involved in there. But this is not just critical feedback. Hey, I'm unhappy with how this game looks. This is, I'm trying to just basically make this person miserable. Um, and, you know, if anybody has earned people leaving them the hell alone, it's Ron Gilbert, and we should all be happy that Ron Gilbert is even doing another Monkey Island game. And if you don't like it, if you don't like the way it looks, don't play it. I mean, that's as simple as it is. But, like, harassing somebody, anyone, you know, not just Ron Gilbert, anyone, is just insane behavior. Um, and I wanted to bring this up because while this has been happening – there has been a also another incident where people were very upset, and this is kind of a moot point uh, because of news that just came out in the last couple of days, but people were very unhappy that there was no news about God of War Ragnarok. And there was a rumor that there was going to be a new trailer and a release date at the end of June. It didn't happen. It happened at the beginning of July, as we now know. But when it didn't happen, people took to Twitter, took to social media, and started harassing not just the official um, Sony Santa Monica account, the developers of the game, but also Corey Barlog and other people who work on the game, the developers. And that, I, I did read more specific, people were sending them, like, dick pics and, like, other, like, um, upsetting imagery and everything. Uh, which I know some people go, uh, a dick pic's not that upsetting. It is if you don't ask for it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, like, that's fine. If somebody wants that, great. But if you're not asking for it, 
that's sexual harassment. Mm -hmm. Whether you're sending it to a man or a woman, regardless of their sexuality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And it's just really showing a, a very ugly side of video game fandom, of people, you know, particularly this God of War story. This was a rumor. People freaked out. They lost their damn minds because this rumor did not pan out. And the rumor was just when they were going to announce the date. Like it got announced like a week later and people lost their minds in response to that. Like it's, this is insane behavior. We were talking before the podcast began about like being, seeing people behavior online and just thinking to yourself, these people can't be serious. These people cannot, this has to be a parody. They have to be acting this out. They can't be this serious, but these people are serious. You don't go to this extreme. It's one thing somebody to go on Twitter and say, well, I'm not buying God of War now because they didn't give me the release date when I wanted it. Ha ha ha. That's one thing, but harassing people is just insane behavior. It's just such a, like, a disturbing level of, like, entitlement to, like, the thing you want. Like, get over yourself. You don't, nobody, the thing that you're wanting right now, nobody owes it to you. It's not, it's not the, it's not a major problem or major issue. It's a disappointment, and I'm sad, sorry if you're disappointed, but it's not something you're entitled to. It's like, the Rick and Morty, it's just making me think of, like, when all those Rick and Morty fans got, like, upset because McDonald's didn't release enough of their favorite cultural appropriation ketchup. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I'll be very upset if there's any delay at all in Return to Monkey Island, and I will go on Twitter and bully every single person that bullied Ron Gilbert uh, if there's a delay, just because that's behavior that deserves ridicule. Not, okay, you know what? That I agree with. That that I can get behind. Yeah, I think we can all get behind that those people probably deserve bullying. Um, you know, just if you're listening to this, right, like if a video game doesn't come out, there's other video games. Mm-hmm. There's a so lot. many video <laughs> games to play. I, you know, it's part of my job to play video games technically. And I do not have enough time to play all the video games. And so I do not understand anyone losing their mind this much over any particular video game. And this is just not acceptable behavior. Not for a video game, not for a movie, not for a book, not for, you know, we've seen George R. R. Martin like, harassed similarly because he hasn't gotten the new game of thrones book out and you just i understand being disappointed but like get a grip and nobody owes it to you to make the exact same the exact thing that you want like if it's not the art style you wanted tough shit who cares i just like (laughs) and like you know and yeah i just if it's not the art style you want go make your own game yeah go make your own monkey island and make it just for yourself and do the art style that you want. And if you don't have the talent to do that, well, then shut up. Yeah, uh, you got what you got before and move on. Speaking of people with no talent, <laughs> um, there is a new game console that has been announced. The, uh, the Podium One, um, which is a quote-unquote Web 3 console. Uh, that's going to be built on the blockchain. So this is a new console that is supposed to play blockchain games. So games using NFTs, games built around <laughs> cryptocurrency. Yay. 
they are saying that this game is going to, or the system is going to come out in 2024. They release some early images of it. It's basically what looks like a PlayStation 5 controller and a system that looks like it's basically a Raspberry Pi 4, like in a case. And then their logo for this system is basically the GameCube logo, basically like turned on its side. So people have come out and criticized them for this, and they came out and said, hey, we're going to change the logo. Uh, One of the features of the system was that it was going to have a fingerprint reader built into the controller, so you would have extra security when you're buying NFTs or cryptocurrency. The thing that was really hilarious about this is when they were describing this in their announcement, they described it as Touch ID, which is a legal copyright of Apple. That is Apple's fingerprint reading technology. <laughs> so now they've had to change that name on all their marketing and everything. Uh, this is vaporware. This thing will never come out, is my guess. I would just be shocked, especially two years away, especially when the entire uh, crypto economy is collapsing right now, particularly NFTs, but you know, <laughs> cryptocurrency just in general. Uh, I don't think this will ever come out, but it is, you know, it is just kind of indicative of people wanting to sort of jump in, get into the game industry because they see it as an easy way to make money. It's not bigger companies have failed before. So um, this is more funny than it is really newsworthy, but it, it's almost, it feels like a joke, like, or like if like, Somebody saw the producers and said, hey, you remember that movie? Let's let's do that, but with a video game console. Yeah. Um, yeah, but- it's somebody wanting to lose a lot of money <laughs> to create a tax write-off or something. Um, but I do look forward to their first official game, Elon's Muskrat Stew, a cooking <laughs> game. Oh, man. Elon Musk also back in the news for bad reasons. Um. So let's let's talk about happier things. Sony is hiring a new software development engineer to, among other things, help develop, quote, new emulators. This has sparked a lot of excitement among people who are saying they're developing new emulators. What could that mean? They believe it most likely means PlayStation 3. So a PlayStation 3 emulator that would allow you to play PlayStation 3 games on the PlayStation 5 as part of the PlayStation Plus new upper tiers and everything. It better be. I mean, I've been talking about this for our entire podcast, but it's not that. I mean, I'm not a computer developer, but I don't think it should be that hard to emulate something on uh, like a piece of technology that is like, what five ten times better than the one previously like even if there's some type of chip i'm sure that can be emulated on a system that is so powerful well uh, playstation 3 is emulated on the pc now so we mm-hmm. we know it can be on modern pcs mm-hmm. the playstation 5 is basically a modern pc it's maybe not cutting edge to the mm-hmm. best gaming pcs you could buy today but it's comparable mm-hmm. to certainly a mid-range one um so yeah, this doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility for them to do. Um, Grand Theft Auto 4 and um, uh, and Red Dead... 
Redemption? Redemption. I, I got stuck on the, the second R. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to say Red Dead Revenge. Um, Grand Theft Auto 4 and Red Dead Redemption remasters have been shelved. They were apparently at least in early development, um, but they have been shelved in place of Grand Theft Auto 6, focusing the entire uh, the entire focus and development of Rockstar onto mm-hmm. Grand Theft Auto 6 instead of those two remakes. Um this is apparently in response to the Grand Theft Auto trilogy that came out uh, not performing as well, not mm-hmm. being greeted as well as they had hoped. Um, so, you know, I, that's, I think, mostly sad for Red Dead Redemption because that game is not available on PC or anything. So, um, but probably more excited for a new, a whole new Grand Theft Auto than another remaster. So that maybe means it gets out earlier than all the better for it. Um, let's see. Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core, the new uh, remaster that they're putting out. They've announced some of the improvements that are coming to it. There's a new turn-based battle system. Um, whether this replaces the original or is a choice you can make between the original's battle system and this new one, is not entirely clear. They're talking about new user interface improvements, uh, full voice acting in the game. So some of the game used to just have text on screen. They're going back and doing full voice acting for it. And, of course, uh, a better camera and better character models. They're using the character models from the Final Fantasy VII remake in this. So, um, you know, it sounds, this sounds more than a simple remaster. This sounds like they're doing mm-hmm. quite a bit of work on this. Mm-hmm. Um, so it sounds like it'll be a, a worthwhile uh, endeavor. I'm excited. And I think that every company really needs to, um, to think about if you want to make something turn-based or not or have both available. Mm-hmm. Because, like, uh, I mean, there's a lot of people arguing that oh, we should all these Final Fantasy games should be turn-based. The Final Fantasy VII should be remake should be turn-based. Um, I really wish that there was an option for all of the games to be turn-based. I think that would make things a lot better because sometimes I do want to like fight and be in the action, but sometimes I just kind of want to sit back and like pick what spell I want somebody to cast. So I think it'd be really nice if you'd be able to go back and forth in this game and in pretty much any game that has a history of being turn-based, at least. And those are, like, both their own, like, valuable gameplay mm-hmm. styles that, like, ask you to be tactical or strategic in different ways, mm-hmm. and different minds, like, different things or different times. And mm-hmm. uh, No, yeah, just I agree. And that, that was something I even kind of... It wasn't exactly that, but that was something when I did play Fallout 3 I even liked was that I could go into, like, that VATS mode and just kind of, like, aim at stuff and kind of, like, strat- strategize where I'm going to hit, like, mm-hmm. with my rifle or whatever. Or I could just, you know like a regular shooter so yeah i think that's a, a fantastic example of a game that really catered to very different audiences with that right mm-hmm. that people who wanted to play it more like a first person shooter or people who wanted to play it more like the traditional um fallout games they both were being catered to and i think as particularly with role-playing games, right? Because I know that was a limiting factor in the 16-bit era with all the classic Final Fantasy games and everything, Chrono Trigger, that a lot of people were turned off by those games because they were turn-based and they were more, you know, accustomed to action games where they had more direct control. Um, And nowadays it seems easier to be able to mix the two and allow people to kind of choose their play style. Mm-hmm. Um, I understand some people get mad about them. They're saying, no, it should be one way or the other, but it feels like with a lot of these, um, 
role-playing games, it, it really is possible to do both. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, let's see. Switch sales have dropped 33% in Japan uh, due to supply constraints. Um, this t- kind of ties into that they also announced a new Splatoon 3 OLED Switch. Um, so that is coming out. I believe it was September that's coming out, at the same time as Splatoon 3 comes out. Um, there are also rumors, again, that there is a new Switch Pro or Switch 2 coming going to be announced this year sometime. Um, it's really hard to know what's going on because they're announcing a new Switch. It's nothing different than the old OLED Switch other than the paint scheme on the system and the dock and everything is Splatoon-themed. Um and they are having supply constraints. So I think people are, are taking little bits of information and saying, hey, um, you know, they're they're buying up a lot of raw materials. Nintendo in their last quarterly report showed they were buying up more raw materials this year than they have the past two or three years. That's a sign that they're going to release a new Switch. Well, it might be, but maybe it's because they're trying to get ahead of these supply constraints. Mm-hmm. And so they're trying to buy up a lot of things. Um you know, somebody who's smarter about that stuff than I am could probably offer more insight, but it, it doesn't seem like it's a clear sign that we're getting any sort of new switch this year. Um, they announced Atari 50, the anniversary celebration, and I have not been excited about anything Atari-related in a, <laughs> a decade or more, I feel like. Uh if, if you don't know, Atari today is not the Atari that a lot of us grew up with. That company's name has traded hands so many times mm-hmm. and everything that it really is in no way related to the original Atari at this point. But they did announce Atari 50. This is being done by Digital Eclipse, the company that has done um, the Mega Man collections and everything over the years. Uh, this sounds like a fantastic collection. So right now they're saying over 90 games will be included with this. And what's particularly unique is, okay, so they're going to have the original Atari 2600, 5200, 7800, the Atari 8-bit computer games, but they're also going to have Atari Lynx, which is their Mm. 16-bit color handheld system, and they're going to have Atari Jaguar games, which is their 64-bit console. That was the last... Mm -hmm. Physical console that I Atari made. They did a 64 bit console. <laughs> yep. Most people did. <laughs> and they're going to put this collection out. They have brand new interviews with people who made these games and who were involved with Atari over the years. Um, they are also making, I believe it's six unique new games. Some of them are sort of remakes of classic Atari games in that style and everything with new graphics and some new gameplay mechanics and everything. Um, and again, this is Digital Eclipse, which just makes this very exciting. This is not some no-name company. This is not a quick cash-in. Atari's done those before and thrown something out there. But this is a company that really goes out of its way, puts a lot of time and effort and love into these packages. You know, their thing has been we really want to kind of make the Criterion collection for video games. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I like that idea. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really excited about this and getting some of those links and Jaguar games because Jaguar, unlike the PlayStation three is a system that isn't very easily, uh, emulated. Mm-hmm. 
And so that actually makes it really kind of exciting that people will be able to emulate and play those games without tracking down and buying a Jaguar at this point. Yeah, I don't think I've ever played a Jaguar game on anything, like emulation or anything like that. It's, it was not a great system, but yeah. it had a couple <laughs> of worthwhile games. Tempest 2000 is pretty great on that system. Uh, lots of people like the Alien versus Predator game on that system, mm-hmm. and it's for its time, it was pretty good. I, I don't think that game probably holds up very well today. <laughs> yeah. Um, but, you know, I, I had a, a roommate in college who actually had one, and so we played it a little bit, but not very much. <laughs> we played other things a whole lot more than the Jaguar. It was most notable. If you've never seen a Jaguar, never played a Jaguar, it, so it had a standard controller, and then on the bottom of that standard controller was basically a numerical keypad. So the idea was that you could um, have all these extra function keys while you were playing a game, that that's obviously way too confusing. People <laughs> could not actually like manage all that. Mm-hmm. Like think of a standard controller, but with another like ten buttons added to the bottom <laughs> of it. Um, There's but a, par- a part it, of go ahead. Sorry, no, it, it was a unique idea at least at the time. Go ahead. There's a part of me that feels like that's cool in theory. Like maybe there's a game you could implement that well for, but uh, yeah. That- like I have an, I, it's hard for me just to switch from one controller to another for a different console. Mm-hmm. So like the idea of remembering that many buttons for one. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna admit something that I usually don't admit. Um, but as controllers have gotten better over time, uh, I'm good with shoulder buttons. But once you get to trigger buttons, that's too many buttons for me. Um, and like I get I get used to them and I use them. But I it's I have to move my uh, index finger back and forth between them because if I try and use like my middle finger, it just I. I can't do it very well. So, like, after controllers got bigger and bigger and stuff, Super Nintendo was great, and then once it got past that, it's like, there's a little too many buttons for me. I, I can empathize with that. Yeah, I think that's actually a lot of people's experience. And when I talk to a lot of people who maybe grew up playing video games and then quit somewhere along the way, when they try to play modern video games, you know, something that utilizes the entire controller, they're kind of at a loss. Mm-hmm. So they might be able to use the thumbstick and some of the face buttons and stuff. But yeah, when you start asking them to use, um, you know, all four shoulder buttons and a second Mm -hmm. control stick and also the D pad switch back and forth, like they just can't do it. And I I think that's something that a lot of people who play video games regularly take for granted Mm -hmm. that you build a whole lot of muscle memory that allows you to do that. Mm -hmm. I I disagree. Um, well, we mentioned it earlier, God of War Ragnarok did get a release date. It is coming this November 9th. You babies. <laughs> <laughs> so please leave people alone. You'll get your new God of War. Maybe. Who knows? It might get delayed. You don't deserve mm-hmm. it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that, that last God of War game was a very good game, yeah. but, you know, people calm down. They're going to delay it by a day for each dick pic they got. <laughs> That's a great idea. I would support that. I would actually laugh very much if they did that. Um, let's see. Forspoken, uh, speaking of delays, has been delayed from this fall. I, I believe it was also slated for November. It's been delayed to January 24th of next year. Um, Forspoken is the Square Enix role-playing game that sort of... Um, a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's court. You're like a modern day woman and you get transported back into this medieval fantasy world and everything. And you're, you know, it looks pretty neat. Um, 
but they are delaying it. Um, you know, just needs a little bit more time in the oven, I suppose. So if you were looking forward to Forspoken, you'll have to wait a couple more months on it. Um, I put this in here. I don't, we don't normally cover like who's on the cover of new video games, but I thought this was pretty neat. Um, and I don't know if NBA 2K has done this before, but NBA 2K3, the new version that's coming out this year, is going to have a WNBA edition. I don't know what's different about this other than the cover art, but the cover art, they are getting uh, Diana uh, Tarasi um, and Sue Bird to be on the cover of it, um, who are two of the big star players of the WNBA right now. Uh, Sue Bird, at least one of the greatest players, most you know, acclaimed and achieved players over her long career. Uh, but they're going to be the cover athletes for that. I thought it was pretty neat that they were putting out a WNBA edition. They have included the WNBA teams in the game the last few years. Um, so actually putting these women onto the cover of at least one edition of the game is uh, seems like a big step forward and kind of neat to see. And it's great, too, because they get paid generally a lot less than the male athletes for doing the same or a better job than the male athletes. So it's it's good seeing them get recognition and being on a cover it's where they're hopefully getting um, the money that they're due. That the, Hopefully it's the same amount of money that they would give the you know, male players. And it's great publicity for the WNBA mm -hmm. as well. Yep. So, um, Let's see. Well, it's time for our Activision News of the Week. Uh, this is kind of a minor one. <laughs> uh, UK regulators have opened an inquiry into the Activision uh, selling um, the deal with Microsoft. Um, this is basically to see, you know, is this creating um, essentially a monopoly uh, is the concern, right? Mm -hmm. That Microsoft is getting too big, that they're acquiring too much of the video game industry. This probably won't be an issue. Um, but, you know, it's always good to do uh, thorough due diligence and investigate these sorts of things. Um, so the U.K. is doing that. I don't think the U.S. has done anything with that. So good job, U.K. Um, Nintendo hosted a mini direct. This was just for third-party games. Um, we're not going to go through all of these, but I'm just going to run through some of the ones that I saw as highlights and everything. They are getting a port of Near Automata. Um, did either of you play this? I it's on my list of things to play. It's one I really want to play at some point. This was so I think I told you all when I started this. Like I'm someone who's recently been getting back into video games. I just stopped for a long time. This is one of those games that happened during that period that I really want to play. But I actually already have it. Otherwise, I would be more excited about this. Yeah. So um, I love this game. This game is fantastic. Mm -hmm. It really kind of surprised me. I didn't play the first Nier. This one came out, got a lot of acclaim. I played it. It's fantastic. People should play this. So it coming to the Switch is uh, pretty exciting uh, that more people will get a chance to play it. Yeah, that's good. They are releasing a new Bomberman, Super Bar Bomberman R2. So Super Bomberman, Bomberman R, when it first came out, got a lot of like negative press my understanding is they've done a lot of work on it. It's really kind of um, won over a lot of people over the years of them doing work on it and doing different ports, and now they're doing a whole new sequel. Um, the original Bomberman is a fantastic game. It's mm -hmm. like a really just 
you know, classic gameplay style. Mm-hmm. Like it doesn't go out of date or anything. So as long as they're making classic Bomberman as part of this, if they want to do other crazy things, <laughs> like I don't care, but just give us a good multiplayer Bomberman game as part of this. That's all I ask for. Um, uh, Mega Man, we already kind of mentioned this earlier. Mega Man Battle Network Legacy Collection is coming out. Uh, this is a collection of, I think they said like 12 games. Oh, wow. Um, as part of this. So the, Be- the Mega Man Battle Network games were for the Game Boy Advance, and they took the uh, style of like Pokemon games. So I think the first two are just single games. It's Battle Man, Battle. Mega Man Battle Network 1 and 2. And then after that, they start doing like a red and blue version or, you know, like a a crystal and sapphire version, sort of like the Mega Man, uh, the Pokemon games. Electric Boogaloo version. (laughs) Yeah, so I think that's how they get to 12 games total in this package. Um, They showed off a bit of footage of Mario and Rabbit's Sparks of Hope. That is coming out this fall. Um, That game looks pretty Pretty cool, and the original one is currently on sale for $10 on Switch mm-hmm. digitally. Um, that's a pretty fantastic game if you haven't played that. It is basically XCOM for kids. Um, <laughs> okay. it, it can get really challenging at times, so I don't want to like undersell it too much, but it is a my first XCOM, really, a lot <laughs> of the game, like kind of introducing you to those concepts and everything. You have just sold me on that game. <laughs> I'm going to go home and download it. I uh, I love the Rabbids by, like, as characters, which is I don't really like um, Minions, which are kind of similar. I mean, they're they're much different. but well, they're a ripoff of the Rabbids. They came yeah. after the Rabbids. Yeah. Well, and... Uh, Oh, go ahead, sorry. And I, I, I love the Rabbids uh, and every Rabbid thing I've done, but I hadn't played this game before. But you, you, I'm going home and buying this as soon as I get home. Yeah, for $10, it's completely worth it. I, I think you'll get $10 worth of enjoyment out of yeah. the game. Um, and I'm excited for this new one. Uh, they are porting Portal 1 and Portal 2 as the Portal Companion Collection. So... If you are the person who has not played any of the Portal games yet, this is your chance on Switch. Neither of you have played any of the <laughs> Portal games. Oh, you've got to you've yeah. got to rectify that. Oh no, I, I'm definitely getting this. I've been waiting for a good way to play them because um, I haven't been able to find a way to play them. Um, and like I, I know so much about them. I know all the pop culture in them. I just don't. I've never played them, so I'm I'm really looking forward to them being available. I I wonder if knowing the pop culture and knowing the memes and stuff around them will lessen the impact. Because when I played mm-hmm. the original Portal and even Portal 2, like none of that was public. Right. Like I played mm-hmm. them very close, not at necessarily at release, but close to release. Mm-hmm. Um, I think I played Portal 2 at release, but Portal 1 was a little after release. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the... The stuff that everybody knows, mm-hmm. the cake is a lie and stuff mm-hmm. like that, that was not widely dispersed onto social media or anything mm-hmm. at that point. Yeah. Um, so I'm really interested if that will affect mm-hmm. the way you feel about these games and react to them. I think it probably will some, uh, but I, it's, it's a, the mechanics seem like something I would really like. and that, So I, I'm always surprised I never played them when they were big. But, um, yeah, I think, I think that the story is already... Unless they change them for the Switch ports. Um, yeah, the story's already ruined for me. But I think, I'm hoping the gameplay makes up for it still. 
there's a lot of story in Portal 2. Portal 1 is very kind of straightforward for mm-hmm. the most part. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of stuff in Portal 2 that probably hasn't been spoiled mm-hmm. if you haven't sought it out necessarily. Um, let's see. And Persona 3, 4, and 5 are coming to the Switch. So we talked, I think, last episode about how they had been announced for Xbox. Uh, they've now been announced for Switch. Um this is pretty fantastic news. People who like the Persona games are getting more opportunities, more places to play these games. I really like Persona 4. Um, you know, I think that's a game worth playing for people. Um, I have not played Persona 3, so I can't speak to it. Of the new release, like of the games now being released to Switch that have been out before, that's the one I'm most excited about coming as 4. Um, and you're... You bought five, right? Right. With your new PlayStation? I still need to get to it because another game came out recently that took priority because it's a sequel to a game I played recently. So, <laughs> Understandable. Um, and one last late-breaking news bit here. I just saw this before we went on air. Um, they have announced RoboCop Rogue City hmm. coming next June. And the coolest news about this game, and really the only news I know beyond a couple of quick screenshots, is that Peter Weller is returning to voice RoboCop. Oh, nice. Peter Weller, who did the voice of RoboCop and played RoboCop in the first two movies, not the third one, I think. Um, He's coming back and doing voice work for the character in this. So that's it. That's so that sells me on it. (laughs) I will play that game at some point just to hear Peter Weller doing RoboCop again. Mm Um, all right, that does it for news. Let's move on to um, what you're playing. And uh, Ryan, why don't we start with you? What have you been playing? Okay, so the sequel to another game that I'm playing recently, that I just played because it just came out uh, super recently, is AI The Somnium Files Nirvana Initiative. So this was one of the first games I talked about on this podcast, and I was like really excited about playing this one. Um, it is overall, I think, so far a more interesting game, a more interesting story. If anything, I probably do like it a little bit more. So, but it's similar. So again, and like, you know, this is basically also me describing what, how, what it was to play the first one. Um, so you are like a detective that is trying to solve a crimes in like the sci-fi Tokyo, and you are going to the themes and investigating them. You are, doing point and click to kind of look at the clues and stuff and to talk to different people at the scenes. Um, you also have that visual novel aspect of like, you know, slip making selections on what to talk to people about and stuff. And uh, sometimes, and it's not like a major thing, but sometimes if you like talk about something, that's like one of the important things that you need to get out of the way. Um, it sometimes will end the conversation kind of early. So you might not get to ask them something else, but I don't think that's anything that ends up affecting the game too much. And the other part of it is, outside of those, is there's, like, these parts where when you're investigating a person, you might actually go into their dreams, and that's where it kind of breaks into a different point where, again, there's kind of that, like, that going around and finding different things similar to the point and click, but you're actually walking around in their dreams. So you get to move around, like, in third person in their dreams. Um, And that's thanks to the fact that you have, like, technology that allows your mind to go into theirs, and you also have, like literal AI, like it's an artificial intelligence eyeball that talks to the detective and goes over information with them and has their own personality. And it's through them that you get to go into their dreams. Um, and this one, one of the difference, a couple of the differences is that you're a couple different sets of characters, like 
two different detectives, um, like, at different points in time. And they each, you know, have their own AI ball that has their own personas. Um, and so you're kind of putting, trying to put this case together over time. Basically, there's a serial killer called the half-body killer because you could only find half of the bodies from their victims. Um, and you're, it starts off that you're, like, six years in the future. Um, and, like, they've popped up again, but you don't know much about what happened in the past. And that's the problem is, like, somehow, like, the history of what happened with this person, like, it's been kind of erased due to, like, technical issues that were going on with the computers at the time and the information they were holding. And um, so you're trying to reinvestigate the original detective, and that's where the other detective comes in. Like, you're also going in back six years earlier to see what they saw and stuff. Um, overall, like, the gameplay and the story is super interesting. I, I get very invested in this. There are, like issues I have with it. Uh, so one of the things I'll say that's improved is they give they do a better job of giving you clues as to what to look for and what to do within different people's dreams because the rules of dreams change as a way to keep the game fresh, but that gets frustrating because it's really easy to just... You ha ultimately just had to do things by trial and error in the first game. There wasn't like really any figuring things out like in terms of how to investigate a dream for the most part. And this this one, they make it a little more clear as to what you need to do within those dreams like because you find clues... You don't know immediately, but you find clues. It's like okay, so like they start to you see the characters start to figure out like the rationality of the dreams and how they work. Um, there's also a mode in there now called, uh, which is a virtual reality mode, which uh, you can't walk around in the scenes you're investigating in like the world outside of dreams, but your AI friend will like record like the details of the world around you that way when you're outside of the scene, cause you know, the idea is you can't mess with the investigation scene. You can just look at it, but that way it can kind of rematerialize it for you and you can actually interact with it in this case, which is kind of like an, I think is a neat way of kind of maintaining the reality of trying to keep the scene intact, but then also being able to move around and work with it and mess with it to see like how something took place. That kind of sounds like, um, the Batman Arkham games where you go and investigate the crime scene and everything. Um, and you're kind of, you know, digitally, I guess, edit, you know, investigating it, walking around and then you're, they're doing overlays and everything for you to see. Right. And there's also like different, like, and similar to those. Cause I remember from playing like the first couple, cause I think you could like put on like particular like lenses to like see like an infrared right. or something. And they have stuff like that in this too. Um, yeah, that's a good comparison. And here's where my problems with this game come up. And it's not so much in the gameplay itself, but it's, like, just certain issues in the story. Um, so something that was an issue in the first game is, like, police corruption is a thing, but they don't really talk about it in depth. In fact, police corruption even kind of helps you be the hero at the end of the day, which, and I granted, I get this is, like, set in, like, sci-fi Japan, but... As an American playing this that knows, like, the very real problems of police corruption, that's just kind of an uncomfortable thing to sit with, like, during a game. And this, I don't know if they're going to dig any deeper into that, but I have a bad feeling they're probably not. Like, like maybe they will. Like, it's not... But you can already see, like, the police corruption that's working in your favor at work. And I'm just a little pessimistic about how they're going to, like, actually, like look into that within the game, um, address that. The other thing is, is that 
There was a cool non-binary character in the first name game named Mama. And there's a scene with her in this one. Um, but, like I said, there was still some, like, problematic, like, stuff about, like, seeing, like, regarding heteronormativity and transphobia with how, like, some characters respond to the character. And, you know, it was just played up kind of for laughs. There wasn't, like, any serious investigation to, like, their cringy responses. And this one, there's just an example of that that really bothered me to the point that I was ready just to put the game down for, like, I was really upset by it. Um, it was it was just, it was even also from a character within the game, too, that it didn't make sense for me to hear that from. Mm-hmm. Um, like, if anything, it was, like, from the, one of the characters I would think would be one of the more, like, compassionate, you know, open to different ways of life characters. And it was that character that made a really awful comment about the character Mama. And it that... Mm-hmm bothered me a lot like uh there's a part of me that was like tempted to just stop the game entirely after that um yeah like and yeah that was the main thing the main things are just awesome game in terms of gameplay experience in terms of like interacting with environments and talking to characters and telling and you know the different paths you can go down and the, the overall complex story because one of the things is with the first game and this game i imagine as well as you play down different paths, but they all interconnect at some point. Like, the different parallel realities you play connect in some way. Um, which, you know, pushes you to play, like, the overall game, not just stop it. Well, I played through this version. They're all connected in some way, so you want to try to play the whole thing. Um, and I love the way it does that with the storytelling and the game mechanisms. Um, but I just thematic issues of, like, how it talks about police corruption and how it treats... Uh, people within the LGBTQ. Um, and, like, again, like, as, even though I like this game more overall, the other game I kind of, I cringed at, but I was able to carry on with whenever it did something problematic in the respect of treating the LGBTQ. And maybe it's not even worse, maybe it's just something about how I reacted this way, but in this game, there was a moment I was actually, despite me liking this game more and loving the game overall, I was about ready to just, like, quit for a moment. I... I went back to it. I got back to it, but there was like just that moment. I was like really done with it. Like after hearing something. Yeah. And I, I think that's interesting. Cause when you talk about the police corruption, that's a trope of, um, noir detective stories, mm-hmm. right? So like we kind of almost expect that, but it, it certainly hits different in, I believe, you know, U S culture today than it may in, Japanese culture today. And I I don't know everything that's going on in Japan, honestly. So maybe there are issues with it there as well, certainly. Um, But when you talk about, you know, the, the non-binary character, even having somebody who is depicted as being bigoted or small minded or, you know, whatever term you want to use to describe them. um, I, I think sometimes people, take criticism like yours and they say, well, he's saying we can't show that, which is part of reality that these people exist. But it's what I I'm hearing from you is that it doesn't get examined at all. It doesn't get like, you know, it's not that that character exists or that character says something. It's that there's no examination of what they say and like how it affects the character of mama and how it affects your character and how they feel about the character for saying something like that. And that's what people are really, you know, 
it, it sounds like you're bothered by. It's right. not that that's depicted. It's that there's no examination when it's depicted. Yeah, I'm not opposed to, like, examining that stuff. Like, But you have to examine it, not just make it happen and mm-hmm. then just walk away from it. Yeah. Um, it's, right. Um, like, that's what bothered me. Like, you know, and, like, as a non-binary gamer, like, it's just it's a very upsetting thing to see. Um, it was... And, you know, and, yeah, I just, if you're going to co- go across that material, you you got to examine it. Um, and this, it was just something to passively accept. And I'm even kind of left to assume that I'm supposed to agree with them because it's just coming from the main characters, the protagonists that you're following along with. And it's not, because it's one of them, it's like, it's that character's AI ball that says it, like, right. that makes the transphobic comment about her. Um, and... It's just it's just said that by one of the main characters that you're playing partially in the game, and it's just walked away from. Like there's nothing. There's no examination of it or anything. So, right. All right. Uh, anything else you're playing, Ryan? Um, I'm trying to think. That's there might have been something else, but that's I've just been focused on that. Oh, I did try out a game called Celeste. It is an amazing game. I will not. Continue playing it though, because I am just awful at it. It's, I love Celeste. I love that game so much. I there's a part of me that wants to continue it, because it is an amazing game design. I don't deny that. Um, and I like the like, I you know I before this I looked into like you know what the creators were doing and the messages that they were trying to communicate, and I appreciate everything about this game. But it is a challenging platforming game, side-scrolling platformer, and I am awful at those. <laughs> it is not a, it is not a criticism of the game itself. It is fantastic as what it is. I am just bad at playing what it is. <laughs> yeah, it, it's incredibly challenging. Um, I, I think it's a game, though, that while it's very challenging, if you work at it long enough, you can progress. It's not one where I ever hit a wall where I I just got so frustrated I quit playing. You right. know, like I felt like I was making progress on, on an fairly regular basis. But it is very difficult. I mean, I I will give you that. Um, but it is a game that pays off in very unexpected ways and is really worthwhile playing. I believe. All right. See, hearing you say that, I might go ahead and give it another try because I did want to play it. I did want to be good. I did want to get good at it, so to speak, because it. I did just what I knew about the creators. Like I wanted to play this game and play through it because I I appreciate so much about it. I just I'm bad at those type of games. It's nothing wrong with it. Nothing wrong with the creators. Ten out of ten design. Uh, not a design Ryan does well. <laughs> <laughs> no, I. You know, it's very much uh, Super Meat Boy. If you've played that, or, I, you know, yes, <laughs> those sorts of games. Um, I do think this game is is more forgiving than some of those games. Right. And I, I think it is a game that if you just kind of beat your head on the wall long enough, you can progress through. Because I, I certainly do not consider myself to be a fantastic video game player in a lot of ways. Uh, there was a time I was. I was like eight. I was really good at video games, but I I go back and play those games now, and I'm like, I I'm terrible now. Why am I not as good as I used to be? Um, and that's a game I I did recently play through. Um, well, a couple of years ago when it came out, and um, it, I I think it's a game that, again, not it's not for everyone, not everybody. If you know if you can't play those type of games, but 
it is worth trying, at least putting the effort in and everything. Because, again, I think that game pays off in some fun ways. And, like, just also to, like, express some appreciation about it. Like, you know, where I was just talking about where the last game failed. Um, this is a game about a trans protagonist's journey with mental health. Um, and I think that's... And so far, as far as I understand, like, from people that have completed it or know all about it, it is a beautifully done game. So it's... Kudos to that. Um, all right. OJ, what have you been playing? Um, so I haven't really had a lot of time to uh, play console games, but uh, I know I talk a lot about the games that I play on my phone, like the idle games and stuff, so I figured I would talk a little bit more about uh, uh, one of them that I've been playing a lot. Well, I've been playing this for years, actually. Uh, so it's called it's a grumpy rhino game. It's called Idle Apocalypse. And so what it is is that you are uh, Sid, who is the head of a doomsday cult called doom and the doom is the acronym for something but he constantly says oh doom means this and then gives out something like demise of organized mediocrity or something but he doesn't have an actual thing that it is an acronym for uh so he just keeps on saying well it's, it's just doom it's fine and so what you're doing is you're trying to raise these idols that will destroy the earth right? and so it what it is is you're in a tower, you start in the first floor, and then you can build a mudroom for free. And the mudroom creates gremlins. And the first level gremlin is just like a goblin. And there are some heroes that are outside of your tower that are trying to stop you. And essentially, you just keep on sending wave after wave of enemies so that the heroes don't ever get to your tower. right? So you start sending these goblins. When the goblins are killed, they give you slime. And then you use slime as a resource to open up the next little part of the tower um, that makes, uh, like, let's see, what is it, goblins? And then uh, there's beasts, right? And so the first beast that you unlock is a spider, and you send a spider towards them, and then you get, like, a hairy spider skin, which, again, you use that resource to open up the next level. Um, and then each of the levels eventually get upgraded to give you different resources. And then you get, like, a juicer where you start juicing the enemies, and you get a different resource from that, Right. Um, and then so you go underground and up. Eventually, you get to a portal that you can open to summon the idols. Now, when you get to the idols and you summon the first one, um, it turns out that he's not this super destructive person, but he's just a really, really bored idol sitting in front of a TV. And then you have to upgrade him. And when you upgrade him, you have to use stuff like pieces of cake. So you get a kitchen as one of the things, and you make cake, and you have to give him cake in order to upgrade him. <laughs> Right, and so uh, you get the first guy, and then the second one is. Idol uh, games have gone wild. Yeah, they really have. <laughs> the second one is his sister, who is kind of like a, uh, if you think about like a very crystal obsessed hippie um, <laughs> woman, and so she's sitting there, and she keeps on talking about peace, and she's just like floating there on her tail, like sitting there talking about peace. Uh -huh. um, when you get to the third one, um, there's girth and he is uh he's just sitting there in a pile of garbage watching tv just like his brother right <laughs> so they they argue with each other back and forth um because they're both just kind of lazy sitting there and watching tv the next idol that you get is a really like goth slash emo guy who just sits there playing his guitar all the time and he just wants to play his guitar he doesn't want to destroy the world and just then a bang on my drum all day. <laughs> <laughs> yes uh, and then the last one is Princess Priscilla, who is supposed to be the most dangerous one. And she's a spoiled toddler who's in her room just jumping on her bed. 
um, with her toys. And she says really creepy stuff, but uh, she's just like a toddler sitting there with her like, um, like teddy bear. Then eventually you, uh, you end up unlocking their grandmother who is in charge of time. So once you get to that point, then you can destroy the world and you, you build up the idols so that they do more damage uh, and kill more people. And then you have to tap at the end when you destroy the world. Uh, and then like you, when you tap, it gives more damage and you get more souls as like a resource when you reset. But then the entire world is destroyed, but the three heroes are there like, oops, we messed up. And the one that's a priest was like, okay, I'll fix this. And he does a really short spell and it just restores the entire earth except for your tower. Is this Final Fantasy origin? Yeah, kind of, yes. <laughs> this is like the um, same plot. Yeah. And so... Uh, but OJ <laughs> seems a lot happier to talk about it. Yeah. Well, I, uh, see, you, I only go on for like five minutes, and then I'm done for like ten hours, and then I have to go back again because that's when the idle stuff runs out. Um, and then so your tower is destroyed, so you have to start over. Um, but you have these souls, and then you can upgrade stuff. Like uh, any enemy, they give one more resource... Um, when when you kill them and stuff and then you are able to unlock even more stuff with the next one and then eventually like there's a mine i have a lab where like basilisks or not basilisks um there's there's someone called let me see what is her name um the the lab the first thing is the thingy and it takes parts of some of the uh, enemies that you had before and then creates an abomination and the second one is called it and it's, it's parts from other enemies that you've been throwing at them that you put together. And the third one's just called Her, and it's all of the uh, feminine monsters that you've been throwing at them. And it's just a big amalgamation of them. Um, and there's mines and stuff. It's, it's really interesting. I really suggest you give it a chance. I will tell you, it takes a long time. I've been playing this for years. I'm still not at the very top, but also I'm very, very idle. I'm not very active when I'm playing it. Um, so what is the name of it again? Idle Apocalypse. Idle Apocalypse. And so what is it that has addicted you to this game for years? Because it, it sounds like a lot of other idle games, but I mean, at least in the gameplay mechanics, um, is it the style of it? Because it does sound like at least that's very unique and yeah. like distinct and everything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the style of it and all the Grumpy Rhino games are very similar. It's it's very cartoony, it's campy, it's satirical. Um, like all of the different people on different floors will have conversations with the, with each other and with Sid. Um, so like I still haven't seen all the conversations, but again, I'm not very active, so I'm not sitting there and waiting for them to pop up. Um, and so you you can do everything without spending money. There's no forced ads, but. Um, you can't, there's a, a supply ship that comes every five minutes and you can watch an ad and get something from it. <clears throat> and then um, there's a few um, floors that you can buy that really help you along. Um, so I've, I spent a decent amount of money on this, nowhere near like 500,000 to max myself <laughs> out. But um, like I'll throw some money at it here or there, um, which I would spend a lot more money than that if I had a game on a console that I've been playing for two years, like all the time. So, um, but like, so some things are sped up a little bit, but you can do everything without paying anything. Um, and, and really it, I feel like I'm progressing, even if I'm just doing five minutes, like two or three times a day, right. uh, even though it's a slow progression. Um, but I feel like I'm progressing and I feel like I've done something. It's understandable. 
Um, all right, so that's Idle Apocalypse. Anything else? Um, that's it. I'll probably save another one for another week when I haven't played much. <laughs> all right. Um, well, for me, I played a little bit more of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Shredder's Revenge. That's the new side-scrolling beat-em-up in style of the old Turtle arcade games. Um, I played it a lot more online uh, with a friend of mine, so we've gone on several times and played together. Um, that really makes the game a lot more fun when you're playing with people, particularly people you can like chat with while you're doing it and everything. Um, that's that's just a fantastic game that's worth playing, uh, particularly if you can play with other people. Um, let's see. I tried out Match Point, which is a new tennis game, um, which advertises itself as a tennis simulator, which I don't know how you simulate tennis with a controller unless you're Wii Tennis. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, this is very much in the style of games like Top Spin and Virtual Tennis and even Mario Tennis to some extent. Um, th- the big difference is, unlike with some of those games, when you hit a shot, you actually, for a brief second, get a little cursor that pops up on the court, which is directing where your ball is going. So instead of just pushing the joystick in a direction, you actually move a little cursor where you want the ball to land on the other side. So you're more actively aiming when you hit. Mm-hmm. Um, that makes it extremely hard to play mm-hmm. this game. Um, I guess that's what makes it more of a simulator than something like Mario Tennis or uh, Virtua Tennis. I love Virtua Tennis, by the way. Uh, the reason I say that um, I would even play a tennis game now is because I'm always chasing that virtual tennis high. (laughs) That original virtual tennis for the Dreamcast is a fantastic game, and I love it to this day. Um, It's fine. It's a fine game. I don't know how much more I'll play it, but I did play a little bit of it, and I found it pretty entertaining. Uh, That is available on Game Pass on Xbox, um, and... I believe it's also on PlayStation and PC. Um, I also played a little bit of Sniper Elite 5. I think I meant to talk about this last episode and didn't get a chance. Um, Sniper Elite 5, if you've ever played any of those games, this is the series where you know, you're know you a sniper in World War II. You shoot somebody, and you get a slow-motion uh, x-ray vision view of your bullet hitting them. So you'll actually see the bullet like go in through their skull or as you can only imagine the greatest place to shoot somebody in a game like this is in the crotch. So that you get <laughs> a slow motion shot of them getting shot in the crotch. Um, and I think that's 90% of the appeal of this game. Um, you know, it's a, it's a fine, it's a fun game. Um, I, I think the best parts of this game is are when you're sniping and the parts when you're like kind of running around sneaking through a base or something and trying to get into a, your next sniping position are probably the less fun parts of the game. Um, it's a little, the controls are a little kind of rigid in those parts. So at times you kind of feel like you're a sniper, but you're directing a tank. Um, and so, you know, I wish there was more sniping and less moving around of the character, to be honest. Um, So that's what I've been playing. Um, Let's get on to our big question for this week, which is, what is your favorite NES game? 
And OJ, we'll start with you this time. What's your favorite game for the original Nintendo? So I'm going to say it's not necessarily the best gameplay, um, but my favorite game is Dragon Warrior. And so when I was young, we we grew up, we were really poor, and uh, a bunch of my friends got a, had a Nintendo, and I didn't have anything yet. We had like a, an old Atari that my dad bought at like a yard sale, um, and I really, really wanted one. Uh, so my parents and my grandparents and my aunt and uncle all kind of pulled Monday together and bought me a Nintendo uh, for Christmas and then Dragon Warrior with it. So it was like the first video game that I had that was mine. Um, there was a lot of like feelings with that. I started playing it. It started my love of RPGs. Um, and it, it eventually helped me make friends because the skills that I learned in Dragon Warrior are skills that I was able to use when my friends were stuck in Final F- or people I knew were stuck in Final Fantasy 1. And then we became friends from that because they knew I was good at video games. And so uh, Dragon Warrior really, really changed my life, not just for the Nintendo, but for like video games as a whole. Uh, so for that reason, that's why Dragon Warrior is my favorite NES game. It's that a sweet story. Beautiful. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I think... I think a lot of people, that game jump-started their love of Mm role-playing games. I actually got that game free when my parents subscribed to Nintendo Power. Nintendo Power did um, um, some sort of special where if you subscribe, you got a copy of that game with your subscription. And so I got that game, and I never would have bought that game on my own um, because... you know, it wasn't an exciting-looking game to look at the back of the box <laughs> or not. anything. Yeah. And uh, it's a fantastic game. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that game is the, you know, prototypical uh, Japanese role-playing game. And mm-hmm. so I think for a lot of people, myself included, obviously you, that jump-started our love of role-playing mm-hmm. games. So, yeah, that's a fantastic choice. OJ, when you can, you should play Dragon Quest Eleven. That I think you'd love that one. Yeah, so we, I've never kept up on ones after that. Honestly, I played a few of them on emulators, and that was it. But I, at some point, I do want to buy the whole range of them and play through. A lot of them never got released here originally, yeah. like you know, mm-hmm. during the NES era and Super Nintendo era and everything. Also, like there was the change in title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, uh, Ryan, how about you? What's your favorite NES game? Um. So, for this, my favorite, my first console is actually the Nintendo 64, so I didn't really play any of the NES games. Um, I first played Super NES games when I borrowed, like, a, a someone's Super Nintendo, but uh, I didn't actually play any NES games until we had, like, an emulator or anything. So, mm-hmm. my favorite would have to be Super Mario Brothers 3. I just, I think that, to me, is one, like, the... So I am awful at side-scrolling platformers, and I'm not good at that one. But I think that's one of the most fun, enjoyable, like just moving through that world, experiencing what that world is. Um, that's like one of my that is like probably is my favorite side-scrolling platformer. Um, I just I love how it looks, the aesthetics, the music. Um, I love like the different caps and the power-ups and like the tanuki, definitely the tanuki suit. Um, and I love like the little thing, like the theories that came out of it. The fact that it's designed to look kind of like a stage play, mm-hmm. and like some of the theories that people had about it in response to that, um, and just the settings, and like when you get to go up on the big battleships and stuff, it's just it's just such a fun 
fun game. Like, the game felt pretty damn ahead of its time. Yeah, I wonder if Super Mario Brothers 3 has a special place in the heart of the theater community. Mm-hmm. Like, theater <laughs> kids who grew up playing video games and stuff, if they have a special place in their heart for Super Mario Brothers 3 because of because of those aesthetics that you talk about. Um, yeah, that's a fantastic game as well. Um, I mean, that's a game that I think everybody um, who's, who had an NES loves that game. Mm-hmm. It, you know, even if I know a lot of people didn't even play that game until later because they just didn't, you know, have the money for it or something at the time and everything. But it still holds up incredibly well. Oh, yeah. Today. I think it's still one of the best Mario games I've played. Like, it's. It's really good. It really is. There should be more Tanuki. And also, I have a heartwarming slash petty story about that game, too. But I'll, I'll save that for another day. <laughs> I, I don't know if you can tease us. Like, is this a quick story? or? Yeah, it's pretty quick. Um, so uh, one of my friends had uh, rented, uh, which sounds weird now that I say it after so long, but rented Super Mario Brothers 3. And I went over to his house. And then like some these were kids that I was kind of forced to hang out with sometimes. And uh, so we weren't really friends, and they wouldn't let me play. And then I went home, and I was kind of upset about it. So my dad took me to the mall. Again, this is, sounds really weird to say. Um, and, like, we didn't have a lot of money, so this was a big thing for him. But he bought Super Mario Brothers 3 for me, and then we took it home. And then so they had to return their game the next day. But everyone came over to my house. My dad wouldn't let anybody else play. They had to watch me play it. <laughs> so, okay. So heartwarming slash petty. Awesome points to your dad. Yeah. That's that's yeah. amazing. I'm assuming these were the people invited over were the kids who wouldn't let you play. Yes, he wasn't correct, inviting correct. over other kids. Yeah, it wasn't, just, them play. It, it wasn't kids <laughs> that were treating me good. It was the other kids who were like kind of making fun of me. Because I was a weird kid. I'm not going to lie. I was a very, very weird kid. Um, and so I got made fun of a lot and bullied a lot. And so that was kind of the thing is like my dad was like, nope, they're not playing. It's just you. And then, and then. It was such a new game and awesome, and everybody did want to sit there and watch it. So, I was it was my first experience of streaming a game, I guess, <laughs> kind of. But that's a that's a pretty cool story about your dad. Yeah. I mean, that is it, it is petty mm-hmm. for a, a grown adult to do that to a bunch mm-hmm. of kids, mm-hmm. but it's petty in the best way. Yeah, absolutely. Because it's a good lesson. Taught yeah. them a lesson, right? Yeah. Hopefully, mm-hmm. hopefully they learned something from yeah. that experience. Um, all right. So, uh, my favorite NES game, um, you know, I, I started to like make a list and I was like, oh, well, I'll just do a top 10 because I can't pick just one. Um, but, um, you know, I'm going to leave off the, the sort of obvious, uh, suspects like, you know, Super Mario brothers and the legend of Zelda. Those Excuse are, Excuse me. <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking more Super Mario Brothers 1. Um, well, actually, Super Mario Brothers 2 may be my favorite of the original NES Super Mario Brothers games. I love that game because it's so weird. Um, but I'm going to highlight two here, uh, Rygar and DuckTales. Oh, DuckTales. So uh, Rygar, if you've never played Rygar, the NES Rygar is an adaptation of the arcade game Rygar, but only in like some of the basic design, it's really a sort of Metroidvania. Hmm. Um, and it is 
side scrolling sort of action, but then you go into other sections and then all of a sudden it's overhead and you're collecting items that allow you to access other parts of different levels and everything. And you're also leveling up your character. So like you actually have experience and everything in the game. And again, sort of like Dragon Warrior, like, you know, this was an early experience with, um, with that sort of gameplay and everything, you know, it was this, it was Metroid, it was Castlevania two. Those were the games that built my love for Metroidvanias mm-hmm. um, before we had that term for yeah. them and everything. And I really uh, just love that game. Even today I can go back and play that game. Um, I remember there's the forest boss and there was a way to glitch them into the wall. So they got stuck and then you could just like beat them very easily and now I watch people beat them in the, you know, I guess the correct way to beat them. <laughs> and I watch it and go, oh, okay, well, I guess you can win that way. <laughs> That's never how I actually beat the boss. Um, and then DuckTales. DuckTales is, you know, Capcom during this era was making a lot of Disney-themed games. So they made Rescue Rangers and Tailspin and um, lots of other games based on Disney properties. But DuckTales is the best, I think. Um, you play as Scrooge McDuck, and you're traveling all over the world, and there's a bit of a Metroidvania aspect to it because you have to get certain items to progress through certain levels. So you'll progress through a level, and then you have to leave and go to another place and find an item. Uh, but what everybody remembers from this game is, one, the fantastic music, particularly the moon theme. Uh, but they remember the gameplay, which is you're Scrooge, and so you have your cane, and you hop on your cane, like sort of like a pogo stick. And so that's how you get across spikes. It's how you jump onto enemies' heads and everything. And when I was a little kid, I had a lot of trouble with the coordination of actually like doing the pogo jumping and everything. Uh, now it seems really simple and easy to do. But I remember as a little kid having some trouble with that coordination Uh but it's just such a fantastic game. It's a, it's not easy, but it's beatable. And it's not one of those games where you're like pulling your hair out constantly. When you screw up, you feel like, oh, I know exactly what I did wrong there. I can like go back through and actually beat that section. Um, and so I, I just love that game quite a bit. Um, and, you know, there's plenty of NES games I love, but Rygar is maybe a bit more obscure for some people. DuckTales is, I think, more mainstream. More people know that one, but it's just a fantastic game. And if you're going to play DuckTales, play the original NES version. Don't play the remake they did a few years ago because that game interrupts every, like, 30 seconds for a cutscene. <laughs> it's just yeah. intolerable. Yeah. And I really love what they were trying to do with it. I love the fact that they got Alan Young to come back and do the voice of Scrooge McDuck for the voiceover right before he passed away, unfortunately. But, oh, man, that remake's hard to play through. It really is. Um, and the original is still a fantastic game, still holds up, and you can certainly play through that and everything. Yeah, I would say DuckTales is probably my top five best games of the NES. Uh, definitely. And probably actually tied for first place um, for just best overall games. Yeah, I think it ends up in a lot of people's top ten. A lot of people really love that game. Um, it's worth playing. Um, and it's one of those games that um, they actually did put out a, uh, a Disney Afternoon collection 
I think that was for the PlayStation 4 and Xbox One. Um, and it's a collection of all those Capcom games for, for the NES era. So as Rescue Rangers 1 and 2, mm-hmm. DuckTales 1 and 2, Tailspin. And there's something else I'm forgetting, leaving out there. Darkwing Duck? Darkwing Duck, uh, yes. That's it. Um, and it has all of those in a collection. It is the original games. It's not mm-hmm. the remake and everything. That's a pretty fantastic collection. Um, so if you're wanting to play those and don't want to go the emulation route, those are that still emulate it, but like it's legal emulation. <laughs> um, and it's a pretty fantastic collection because all those games are pretty fantastic. Um, all right, that does it for this week. Uh, we want to thank you for joining us. As always, you can check out more content on salukigames.com. Um, you can email me at justin.young at sau.edu if you have questions, comments about the podcast. Otherwise, thank you, Ryan and OJ. Uh, Alicia, we hope you get back soon. We hope you have finished off reading all those Sonic comics and everything. We need your Sonic opinions because when you're not here, Ryan gives us his. (laughs) You saw how that went this episode. So we need some sort of buffer to keep Ryan's, like, demented uh, Sonic (laughs) fantasies at bay and everything. Uh, But thank you, everyone, for listening. We'll be back soon with another episode.